You're listening to This Life Explains It All. With the creators of Vera, your guide for navigating a conscious life. We're Stefania Romeo and Catherine Griffiths. This Life Explains It All was created out of belief that our life experience is our greatest teacher. And as soul sisters and intuitives, we've spent the past decade completely obsessed with better understanding our minds and our bodies, all while running a mile a minute with busy careers as leaders in the tech startup world. On this podcast, we are bringing you the insights and lessons that have changed our lives with the thought leaders, healers, and dreamers behind them. We're discussing wellness practices, healing methods, and experiences that get us to think differently about life and live empowered. Whether you want to uplevel your health, your career, your relationship, or are going through changes to your life path, this information can help you get there and let you know that we're right here with you. We believe life isn't meant to be lived linear, and no matter where you are right now, you're right on time. Hey guys, I'm Katherine Griffiths. And I'm Stefania Romeo, and you're listening to This Life Explains It All, Vera's podcast. Today, we're talking to Jeanette Hyde. Jeanette is a nutritional therapist specializing in gut health and the author of books that help you eat and behave in ways that make you feel both healthy and happy, including her latest book, The 10-Hour Diet. She bases her method on the latest scientific research in the space. She is a wealth of knowledge on everything that we've learned from every kind of study that's been done on this space, gut health, fasting, and beyond. And she talks about all of it. And she specializes in converting that research into easy to implement and effective actions that we can take in our day-to-day lives. Yeah. And her approach is rooted in two things, eating at times of the day that we were designed to eat for optimal health, and also feeding the microbiome, the bacteria in your gut, the right food to support gut, weight, immune system, skin, and brain health. Jeanette is well-known and highly regarded in the health and wellness world. She's a real deal, and we're thrilled to have her on for this conversation. Yeah, I really like the idea of intermittent fasting and the way that Jeanette describes it because it's not about restricting. It's just about changing the times of day that you're eating. So you can still have whatever you want, especially at first, and there's no restricting of certain food groups. And that really attracts me because like I've said in many other podcasts, restricting really doesn't work for me. Yeah. And I think it's just overall an easy and approachable way. So I've never been called to intentionally intermittent fast because I've seen it associated with more strict diets and long fasting windows and just seemed really intense for me. And that does not work for me, but this method and her approach to intermittent fasting feels really easy, really intuitive. And we get into all of it. It's interesting because like, I've always been someone who has had to work out and I've always worked out. I've talked a little bit how I've changed how I've worked out, but one of the big lessons of life in terms of maintaining a healthy weight that I feel good about has been that as much as I love working out, it's more for the mental health and it's really the eating, how and when we eat that impacts our weight. And it's so much less about Mm -hmm. all these crazy workouts, even though I think those are great for mental health and toning and all of that stuff. It's been so true for me. Yeah. I mean, eating is 90% of it. So, and it's not necessarily, you know, according to what Jeanette is saying, it's not necessarily what you eat, but when you eat. Yeah. I talk a little bit with Jeanette in this episode about kind of how we've seen intermittent fasting happen in other cultures without calling that or without it even being really intentional. 
So my family is Italian and from Italy. And one of the things that I always notice when I'm there is they are essentially intermittent fasting because they're not eating until lunchtime and then they're having a big lunch and then they're having a smaller dinner. And I always been fascinated when I see my family and friends there that they eat anything they want. They have huge lunches of pasta and dinners of pizza and they're all thin and maintain healthy weights. And I made that connection that, oh wait, they're doing intermittent fasting without even calling that. It's just part of the culture. And Jeanette named a lot of other cultures that do similar things. Yeah. Oh my God. When you told me that, it made me so excited because as you know, (laughs) pasta and pizza are my favorites. Okay. So before we get into the conversation, you know, we're all about gut health, having a healthy microbiome, nourishment, and doing it all in a way that's easy and fun. And we love Saqqara for that. Saqqara's incredible plant-based meal programs are a huge part of our lives. They have weekly plant-based meal programs. You can choose which meals you want. Everything is delicious and has superfoods in it. They also have a level two detox program, which I love doing every couple months and have talked about recently my experience. They also have amazing clean boutique products like chlorophyll water, collagen chocolates, Their stuff is awesome, especially if you're looking to reset in the new year. If you're interested in trying anything from Saqqara, use our code XOVIRA, that's X-O-V-I-R-R-A, and get 20% off anything for your first order. All right, let's get into the conversation with Jeanette. So in this conversation, we talked to Jeanette about how a personal health crisis brought her into her work and now into being a leading nutritionist and author. We talk about how to actually do intermittent fasting the right way, where it still feels easy, enjoyable, and you can get results. So I ask her all of the intermittent fasting questions that I've had for a while, like, does coffee really count? And what are the right times of day to choose for your time frame? plus a lot more? Yeah. And we talk about the easiest, most effective ways to start having a more nourishing, nutritionally focused relationship with food and the latest on how your gut health impacts your mood, plus tips and recommendations for what to eat to improve your gut health, digestion, and way you feel overall. Jeanette's approach and her style throughout this conversation is really relatable, eye-opening, and compassionate. So we can't wait for you to hear this. Let's get into it. Welcome again, Jeanette. We're so excited to have you on the podcast and dig into gut health and intermittent fasting. But we'd love to start out with your story on how you got into the world of nutrition, being a leading UK nutritionist and an author. So yeah, tell us about your story. Right. Uh, Yeah, it's not a simple thing, of course. (laughs) It's interesting because the way I fell into nutrition was because I had a burnout myself and I was working on a national newspaper as a senior editor here in the UK and I absolutely loved my job and what I'd always wanted to do and I kind of threw myself into it and I you know I just did the sort of long hours and you know you know it was quite a big job but I really enjoyed it And then I had two young children and, you know, I was juggling those two things. And literally, I just woke up one day and I couldn't move. My spine 
felt as if I'd been in a car crash and my neck wouldn't move and like my body just didn't work anymore. (laughs) And it was really shocking because I didn't even know, it wasn't even on my radar because this was probably 17 years ago now. Nobody was talking about burnout. The expression didn't even exist. It wasn't even a diagnostic term. It is now. So it was just really difficult to get a diagnosis. It was just, so basically it's almost as if because I I fell apart, it was like mentally and physically. And because of that, my body wouldn't work. I had to change my diet and lifestyle because there wasn't a pill that somebody could give me to put me back together again. And what was interesting was I started, you know, I quit my job. I started seeing daylight again, you know, walking in the park with the stroller. You know, there's probably, you know, I don't even know what my vitamin D must have been looking like at that time. You know, some of these things are so basic to your your functioning. So, you know, and I reconnected with my family and my friends. And I started cooking from scratch and eating really properly you know I'd been eating on the run before then and it was just like sort of bit by bit by bit I got better and it took about a year to recover but after recovering you can't just sort of go I'll just go back and eat and live how I did before because you know what I mean that wouldn't make sense so Mm -hmm. I became very very interested in nutrition and lifestyle but I also was very aware at that time that, you know, all the women's magazines were still on this sort of low fat diet and calorie counting thing. And that was all that was seemed to be the only thing you would ever hear about to do with nutrition. Mm-hmm. Didn't make sense to me because it's like I wanted mm-hmm. to know what I needed to eat to nourish me. So I got really interested in this. So I went all the way back to university, did a four year Bachelor of Science degree. Previously, by the way, I'd done a degree when I was young in Spanish and Portuguese, Hispanic studies. So it's completely different. And I went and did a science degree in nutritional therapy here in London at Westminster University. And one of the reasons I did that type of course is because I wanted to be able to understand and critique research and literature and then work it out for myself, you know, do an interpretation myself, because that's what it's about. And that's what I felt was really missing at that time was just, you know, we were just being given this whole low fat and calorie counting mantra and it wasn't working. Still isn't working that stuff, you know, when you see what that's done to us, you know. So that's how I got interested. And then from there I wanted, of course, to interpret what I was finding and use it in clinical practice and help people. And that's how I've ended up where I am today. (laughs) And then as well, by writing books, you can share it with many more people. Yes. I love stories that have a rising out of what feels like a rock bottom. And I feel like that really happens for many people when you really go through something very difficult. And I think it's helpful, especially during this time and what's going on. And a lot of people experiencing those kind of rock bottoms to recognize like something great can come from this. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, that, that was exactly it. And I have to say, it took me quite a few years before I could even talk about it. It was, yeah. you know, really difficult. But yeah, you're mm-hmm. right. We're, we're mm-hmm. in the middle of that at the moment. A lot of people must be right there right now. Yeah. But hopefully a lot of good will come out of it. <laughs> yes, we're optimistic on that. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. And I think it's it's helpful to hear stories like yours because it reminds us, okay, 
this happens. She's done it. I can do it, you know, persevere. So that's why I, I mentioned that. And thank you for sharing that piece of the story with us. When it comes to our nutrition or dieting, I mean, I've been fascinated by this kind of these following the diet culture and methods for so much of my life. I was chubby growing up. I always had like a little extra weight and I was always kind of, even from a little girl looking at the magazines. And I remember seeing what you are sharing, low fat, low diet. I remember there was a low sugar period that that was like the big thing. Now, more recently, there are, you know, counting calories, excluding certain food groups, keto. You know, there's so many different things in this space that I think a lot of us feel overwhelmed. Like what is the right thing to do and how do I navigate all of this? So I would love your take on, you know, how one might navigate this space when they're looking to become more healthy. Yes, I agree with you. It's really, it seems very complicated and there's lots of contradictions. And you have to, I think the main point you need to know is there isn't one diet that fits all people. Everybody's individually different, right? So some people thrive on the vegan diet. Some people, they completely just so weak and not in a good way with it. You know, other people do really well on the keto. Other people don't even lose one pound doing it for a month. So the first thing to recognize is if a diet doesn't work for you, it's not that you're a failure or anything. It just wasn't the right one that fits your physiology and everybody's completely different because it would be like, if you took one diet and then said the whole world has to do this diet, it would be like literally taking a pair of jeans, which are size medium, and insisting that every single woman on the planet had to wear this one pair of jeans. You imagine how uncomfortable that would be and how mm-hmm. it just wouldn't work, you know? So, And it's the same with food and diet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When people ask me about nutrition and they say, oh, you know, they're all complicated. Where do I start? Where do I start? And the, the one thing I just say, if you want to cut through it all, the one principle you need is to just eat real food. And then, and then people do feel that's a bit complicated because, I mean, the word real food, what does that mean? It's like, you know, it doesn't describe what the food is, does it? But it just means eat unprocessed food. And then within that, you can find what is the best type of diet for you. But it's the processing of our diet that has been very difficult for the human body. And it's at the root of a lot of the problems that we've got. It can disrupt your microbiome, which is the gut bacteria, which is involved in you know helping your immune system, modulating your weight, helping your mood, making, you know, has an effect on your skin. Can you see? So but literally sometimes just shifting so that you're cooking from scratch, coming back to what happened to me with the burnout. It's the you just get back to basics from scratch or buy foods that haven't been messed around with too much. So I'll just give you an example. It always fascinates me, the milk situation, right? Because you have the whole, you know, you'll have people like, oh, you shouldn't drink milk. We weren't designed to drink it. Large portions of the planet, for instance, if you're of Asian heritage or other ones as well, Southern Italy, don't have enzymes in the gut to break the milk down. It tends to be more like Northern Europeans can digest it better because we've done farming for the last 10,000 years and our genes are kind of caught up with producing the enzyme to break milk down. Do you see what I mean? 
Yeah. Oh, yes. I've been down this road. I'm so curious for what you're going to say. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So, (laughs) and then milk becomes demonized. And then you have like the whole world going around having these watery, these coffees made out of this watery milk, you know, like the oat milk, the almond milk, the hazelnut milk. It's like really, really, it's just like white water. It's got very, very little nutrition in it. And all these people have gone, right, I'm not drinking milk, right? Because it's a blanket thing. Oh, milk's terrible, milk. I'm not talking about people who actually have a problem digesting it and have had symptoms and having diarrhea every time they drink it because they don't have that enzyme. I'm talking about just, you know, generally, suddenly everywhere you go, there's, you know, and the milk, the watery stuff is three times the price here in the UK to normal cow's milk, right? And yet suddenly we're in this whole world where milk, nuts, plant milk is better, right? And so it just doesn't make any sense to me because number one, milk, you might be fine with milk, right? And you might be losing the opportunity to have some really nourishing good stuff in there every time you have a cafe latte or something. Because milk has got vitamin D in it, it's very good for your immune system, and it's got fat in it. And so the vitamin D gets absorbed in the body because it's got some fat with it. You need vitamin D is a fat soluble vitamin. So you need some fat and you need the vitamin D, right? Well, but you can go and choose the watery stuff that hasn't got any of that in. Now, this is where it all gets interesting. In my humble opinion, I think the reason so many people are having problems with milk, because sometimes it's not just they find it you know, maybe they don't have enough enzymes to break it down. They might be having problems with some of the proteins in it. So they have inflammatory kind of reactions to it, like skin problems and stuff like that. In my opinion, and from what I've seen working with lots and lots of people now, I'm absolutely convinced the main problem with the milk is the processing of the milk. So do you know, I was coming back and you were saying, oh, these diets out there, which one do I do? If you just come right, 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 right back, unprocessed milk. Because if you think about a lot of the milk in the supermarket, it comes from a cow that has probably been given growth hormones. It will also have been given antibiotics. The milk is then pasteurized and all the bacteria gets killed. It then gets homogenized, which means they sort of shake it all up. So all the particles become the same size. And so the fat doesn't separate in the milk. And then suddenly it's given to human beings. And then it's often put in a plastic bottle as well, which has sort of got all sorts of chemicals in it just to add into the mix. Do you see what I mean? And then people go, I'm getting inflammation every time I have this. Or do you see how? And what I find coming back to clinical practice about milk is the less processed it is, the better I find people can digest it and the body accepts it. So that means going unhomogenized, they do exist. The pasteurization you usually have to have because of the safety, you know, and transportation. But if it's organic, it won't have the hormones and the antibiotics in it. And some people, you can even buy milk, which is unpasteurized. It tends to be farmer's markets here in the UK. But if you were to have that milk, it then has lots of, you know, live bacteria in it. And a lot of that live bacteria, there's one particular one, the lactobacilli in there. It goes into your gut and it helps you to digest milk products generally. It helps with digestion. So do you see what I mean about like the whole world and lots of people having problems with milk and 
in my humble opinion, I think a lot of it is to do with us processing the hell up out of very natural foods. Yeah. And that's probably the case for so many foods beyond just milk. It's like, because, you know, our ancestors didn't have a problem digesting a lot of these things, like even like grains and that whole food group. And now we're having all these problems and we just say, oh, it's gluten or all it's this. So are you seeing that across those foods as well? So what I found really interesting was, you know, a few years ago, I did a lot more elimination and challenge, you know, especially with gluten and dairy because people were physically having problems or do physically have problems. But what I did and what I do now, how I work now, is I get them off all the processed versions of, and we build up tiny, weeny little amounts bit by bit by bit. So dairy, if somebody's been off of that for a few years or something, I'll start with, you know, something like kefir, but an organic one. Yeah, it's organic and authentically made of real kefir grains. There are different, even within the world of kefir, there's ones that are mass production and fast ferments and some that are slow ferments. So mm-hmm. I'll get somebody onto a really good kefir and literally start with a teaspoon a day. Because when you do that, the lactobacilli are going into the gut and the lactobacilli are going to help you break down lactose in milk and other dairy. So you can start having you know, a bit of cheese now and again. And then even within the cheeses, it's not the American cheese that I would recommend to anybody because it's like eating plastic, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> I, I get people to have, you know, the raw, unpasteurized, slowly fermented, smelly French cheeses like a Roquefort or the Swiss cheese, Gruyere, or even Parmesan. Italian Parmesan is unpasteurized and authentically made. And, and a lot of people can, who may have had problems with the American plastic cheese, little bits of Parmesan, it's almost like having that Parmesan, you're training the, the gut to be able to digest not only milk and stuff better, but your digestion gets better when you have these live foods in your gut. Yeah. Mm. It makes so much sense. And it's all about kind of getting back to the the basic form, it sounds like. I'm definitely going to look into the seeing if I can get my hands on some unpasteurized milk. The farmer's market in California, I feel like I could probably find it. And that's interesting. I'm going to try that out. I remember my grandparents used to, I think they had it because I remember the fat would separate. That's, that means it was unhomogenized. So unhomogenized means the fat separates. And yeah, we, when I was a kid, we all used to fight over the fatty bit to go. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. Delicious. So we want to get into intermittent fasting. So I know that you work with intermittent fasting in your work. Can you tell us a little bit about what is the science behind why intermittent fasting is something to consider or could be beneficial for us? Okay, so, you know, as, as you know, intermittent fasting, it's been around for a few years now, I don't know, seven years or so, it's been quite out there. And originally, the first type of intermittent fasting that got popular was the thing where you would eat normally for a few days of the week, and then you would count calories and have a very low calorie thing diet for a couple of days. But what's become, I never got on that one because I was one of those people who'd be walking around like so hangry on those two days. You wouldn't want to know me, (laughs) the hungry and angry person. So that's why I I personally never went down that route. But what caught my eye after a while was this research that started coming out about another, it was another type of intermittent fasting called time-restricted eating. 
and it was originally called time restricted feeding but anyways time restricted eating tre and i found that really that caught my attention right at the beginning there were mice studies coming out from you know the sulk institute where they took mice and they would have three different groups and then they would feed them all exactly the same, you know, rubbishy, high-fat, high-sugar diet for like four months. And they did loads of different tests, but, you know, this was the general kind of things they were doing. And then they would have like one group that could eat what's called ad libitum. Anytime they want, they could go and have a nibble on whatever the food was. And then you'd have some that could only eat, let's say, in a 12-hour window and then 12 hours of their 24-hour period, you know, the access to the food was blocked off. And then with some of them, they did things like only eight-hour access. But what was really, really interesting and what was revolutionary is that you would have expected they're all having exactly the same calorie counts. I don't know. You would not have expected what came out of it, and that was that the ones who could eat whenever they wanted became obese and diabetic, and the other ones eating in the where they had, you know, they ate the food in specific windows of time, the same calorie counts, they lost weight. So it was really interesting quite quickly. And so I started doing a lot around, you know, getting people to eat in a 12-hour window. So in my first book, The Gut Makeover, I did that because in those mice studies as well, the microbiome, the gut bacteria really flourished when the mice had sort of, you know, a long stretch off from eating. So it's almost like the microbiome recovers a bit when you have a bit of a break, or that's what we thought in humans. But what's really interesting is since then in the last five years, the research moved forward. We've now got some human studies and we're now getting down to the nitty gritty of which patterns probably are the most helpful and what does work and what doesn't work. And so that's why I've written my latest book and I've landed on the 10 hour window with the 14 hour overnight fast. And what's I've used this with lots and lots of people in my clinical practice and my groups and all this stuff over the last couple of years or so. And I've tried, you know, 16-8 with lots of people and I've done loads of 12-12. But what I find really, really interesting is I kind of feel that this pattern is probably going to suit the most amount of people. And so what happens is people can lose weight, usually about, it's, it's very gentle, kind weight loss. That's what I like about this. It's not like, you know, you can't eat this or that. You just carry on your completely and utter normal background diet. That's what they did in the studies. So there's no restriction or anything. You just eat in this window and you do it for three months and people tend to lose about seven pounds or about three and a half kilos. But that's without not even changing a single thing in the diet. Of course, when I work with people in my practice and one-on-one, I start getting them off the processed food and eating more unprocessed foods, you know, you can go further. But it's a really nice intervention where you're not going to have to go without a lot. It's just a matter of, you know, playing around with these timings. But the main thing that I've found, and the other reason I've written a book is because there's so much on the internet and there's so much confusion about this particular subject. And there's so much out there that's not based on actual studies. And things have changed a bit since the mice studies about, where the devil is in the detail. Are there certain people who shouldn't do intermittent fasting? Like in the, I think I read like women in the reproductive age. I'm not sure about pregnancy. People who've even got a history of eating disorders shouldn't do it because it's too easy to start becoming 
perfectionist about it and you find that people can end up going oh I can do 10 I can do eight I can do six I can do five and before you know it triggered all kinds of you know behaviors that might be unsafe so that's why you don't use it with anyone who's got a history of eating disorders that thing you mentioned about women I haven't actually seen research on if pregnant women should do it or not or if women who are menstruating or women who are menopausal should do it. At the moment, I haven't come across any research. But what I see is I use this pattern with people of all ages. I've used it with a lot of high flyers who are really, really stressed. And what I like about it is you don't have to start cutting down on their nutrition. They can still get a really good nutritious diet in there every single day and then get the benefits as well. There was a study recently, which was about the 16-8, and the people who were doing the 16-8, they lost muscle mass. So do you know what I mean? They weren't as lean. They were losing the good, you know, nice muscly bits on them. And especially if you're older, you don't want that happening because as you get older, muscle dwanes anyway. But they think that was because once you make that eating window down to eight hours, many people can only fit in two meals at that point. And what the meal that in that particular study people were missing was the breakfast. So they was eating between 12 and 8 p.m. So what's the thing that a lot of people have at breakfast is eggs and eggs are full of protein and they would be what would be help you to build muscle. Do you see what I mean? It's like so that's why, again, I come back with the 10 hours you can. If you if you're the kind of person you need three meals a day, you can fit three nutritious meals in there. You can have the breakfast if you need it. But the main thing is you need to stop eating by 8 p.m. And that's the absolute cutoff because that's the other problem that you see is that people often, because of the whole internet thing, it's like, oh, I'm not a natural breakfast eater. You can go through till 2 p.m. Oh, I've done really well. I've fasted all that time. They start eating and then they're finishing eating at 10 p.m. And that's put a huge amount of strain on the body. Your your body is not designed to be breaking food down at that time. And like, your body is primed with the circadian rhythm to digest food during daytime. And it puts a huge strain on you doing it late at night. So if you start trying to do this late at night, you're probably not going to get the benefits long term. And you could get quite depleted in the process. And the other thing that um, there was a recent study that showed was that if people were doing long overnight fasts, but having less than six hours sleep, they were overweight. They weren't, you know, shifting. So listen, do you see what I mean about there's all these, the devil's in the detail. I mean, you can't do this harsh and fast fasting and then burn the candle at both ends and, you know, not be getting proper sleep and you could become unwell. So we're on the topic now about, yes, you have to be careful with fasting and gentle. I think is the answer. Yeah. I have a couple of questions, tactical questions on how to do this right. So one question that I think comes up a lot in the context of intermittent fasting and something I'm curious about is, is it okay to have anything in that fasting window? Like, can you have coffee? Can you have coffee with a little bit of milk in it? Like, what are the rules when it comes to what you can have during that fasting period? Or is it nothing at all? In the studies, and that's what I'm always going to go back to, and that's where I'm getting the yeah. guidance from. Yeah. People had black tea, black coffee, or water. 
Okay. So when I'm working with people, I also then don't have the splash of milk in there because it is, you're instantly putting, there is some sugar, you know, natural lactose sugar mm-hmm. in milk. So you're instantly, so your body's like, is it getting all switched on again, you know, with digestion and you're not fasting anymore quite. So I basically say to people, zero calories, you know, black coffee, white coffee, some people, you know, green tea, white tea, some people do herbal teas, but I'd say to people, don't have any of those um, fruit teas because some of those do have a bit of fructose in them. Do you see what I mean? So mm-hmm. yeah. I try and keep it to, and then even then within that, if I have been working with somebody who's really, really got an incredibly stressful life and they're the kind of person who gets a bit jittery drinking black coffee on an empty stomach, I do not recommend that to them at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, so again, you see about the personalization. So you need to kind of think, oh, how am I? I mean, I personally drink white tea on an empty stomach and the white tea and the green tea have less, you know, caffeine in than the black tea's got less caffeine in it than the black coffee. So yeah. it depends how sensitive you are to coffee and how sort of like of a stress response you get in the body from it. So do you see what I mean about keeping it gentle and making sure your stress hormones don't go like this? Because you know, you can't handle black coffee. Yeah. Okay. So that's very helpful. That answered a big question for me that I've had for a while. And then on the other question uh, in terms of tactically, I mean, I know you said stop before eight o'clock. Are there certain times within that eating window that you suggest focusing on more for the eating? I know you talked about during the day in the circadian rhythm. I know in the Vedic tradition and some other, you know, ancient traditions, they say eat when the sun is highest in the sky. So is there any other deeper guidance in terms of navigating that eating window? So there are various studies that all basically, in my opinion, point you to eat your biggest calorie meal earlier in the day, if you possibly can. Mm -hmm. Because the pancreas, is linked in with the you know your internal clock the circadian rhythm is primed to work most efficiently during daytime and then that's one of those organs that in the evening it starts like not working as well so in terms of how you're gonna handle food and how it's going to affect your metabolism and you know protect you from type 2 diabetes and stuff like that you need to be eating during the daytime i think what's happened in our society is that food's just got later and later and later, hasn't it? And it's just become like most people are eating their biggest meal of the day quite late at night. But not everybody can get to having, you know, the main meal at lunchtime. They can't do it because of practical reasons. But then I would say try and eat it at 6 p.m. But, you know, Mm -hmm. be finished. I mean, some people, there are two options. You can either be eating between 8 and 6 or 10 and 8. And that's another thing is quite often people are like, oh, I'm doing that already. And you get into the details. Actually, they start, they're sitting down at the table at 8 p.m. Mm-hmm. And they're finishing at quarter to nine. And so you're not going to get the benefits. So you ha- also have to think, what type of person am I? Am I like, am I what kind of person who's starving when I get up in the morning and I love breakfast? Or am I the kind of person who wakes up in the morning and it's like, it takes me ages to get hungry? So you need to sort of decide, are you sort of like the eight till six one where you can make this a joyous breakfast and probably just have a, what we call in the UK, high tea at six o'clock. That's where you sort of maybe have some nice sourdough toast and a bit of peanut butter and an apple or something. You know, I'm just giving that as something that 
I don't know what in, in other countries they have, but this, like in Germany, they have Abendbrot, which means evening bread. And it is literally bread and cheese and a bit of pickles. And because people are having their main cooked lunch at lunchtime in Germany. Yeah, but you, you've basically got to work out. But yeah, just shifting earlier is key. I think it's so interesting to learn from some of these other cultural traditions as well. So when I was, you know, looking at your work and looking at this intermittent fasting, I thought a lot about my family who is from Italy and a lot of them still living there and in the culture. And they, I mean, they do tend to eat a little later, but they all eat, you know, they don't restrict themselves. They eat whatever they want, but they don't eat really until lunchtime. They're not hungry and starving and wanting to eat. They just, they have the espresso in the morning. They don't eat until lunchtime. They have a huge lunch of pasta, pizza, whatever they want. And then a small dinner. I mean, their dinner's a little later, I think, than you would recommend, but it's kind of following this. Sometimes they say aperitivo in Italy for dinner, which does not have to have alcohol involved, but is like the little snacks for dinner. And so I think it's really interesting and kind of fun to look at these other cultural traditions and how they're doing it. Yeah. I mean, that, and I agree with you. It's very interesting about the Mediterranean, isn't it? Because like in Spain, which is, you know, the country I probably know best in the Mediterranean, they're kind of eating at 10 p.m., which according to, you know, when you look at this, doesn't sound right. But I was thinking about that recently. And it's like for about six months of the year, it's, well, I don't know how many months of the year, but you know what I mean? It stays late, very light, very, very late. Yeah. So it is actually still daylight a lot of the time when they're eating late. Do you see what I mean? Because with the circadian rhythm, it's almost like a lot of the hormones and processes in the body all get switched on when night falls. So quite often people are not eating, actually eating at dark. They're eating in the light. Mm -hmm. So that might mean there's a bit more flexibility there. Yeah. For me, I just, I love carbs and cheese (laughs) and I always have. (laughs) I'm wondering with, first of all, if that might have something to do with my gut being off, which I'm assuming that it it could have something to do with that. But then can intermittent fasting help with that because it's naturally starting to heal the gut. And then over time, you just naturally start craving different types of foods. Have you seen anything like that happen in your work? So many times people's digestive issues improving after about two weeks of having a long overnight fast every night. And that's because if you think about it, when you're eating, because often we're eating grazing all day long or we're eating little and often, or the whole digestive system is getting switched on. And there's like liters and liters of enzymes and hydrochloric acid being sort of spurted out and produced in that organ every single day, you know, and then the pancreas is pumping out the insulin. And do you see what I mean? There's like this, it's like a factory that has to do loads and loads of work and has to pump all the food along. Imagine for 14 hours, Every night, you give that engine a rest, and it can repair itself. It's, there's a mechanism called autophagy, and when you're asleep overnight, uh, cells start to repair themselves. And when you're not eating, that energy can go on all this repair work. So it's interesting because often people are like, "Oh, what shall I eat? What shall I? Eat? What should I eat? What should, what should I not eat? Do you think I should? I just want to know which five foods I should not eat." And it's like, actually, don't worry about that too much. Just eat really well and start to have some time off. Give that digestive system some time off. Yeah. One of the things that we find really interesting is looking at gut health as it relates to how the, it can impact our mood and mental state. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you see 
with regard to gut health and mood or, or mental state? Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it, that one? Because, I mean, you often feel it in your gut, don't you, when you're nervous? Mm-hmm. That's because, you know, messages are going from the brain via this vagus nerve, which, you know, which connects to the gut and you can feel nervous. But what's interesting with the microbiome is we now know that all that bacteria inside the gut and the composition of it is having an impact on the brain the other way. So there are messages going up that vagus nerve or hormonally, and there are a few other mechanisms, but the composition and layout of this bacteria has an impact on that. So what do I see? Yeah, it's really interesting because... um, I sometimes have um, clients who are referred to me by psychiatrists here in London. And one of the first things that I do when, and often they come to me because they've got IBS and stuff like that. And that's very common for IBS and anxiety to go hand in hand. But what is very interesting, I often do stool testing with those patients. And there's a particular bacteria called Coprococcus. And there was a study a year or so ago where they found that subjects who were depressed and anxious didn't have much of this coprococcus, whereas happy people had lots of coprococcus flourishing. So I always look at these stool results now. The first thing I do is I'll like get the page where the coprococcus is. And, you know, it's nearly always very, very low in the people who are depressed and anxious. I mean, there isn't a lot more that, you know, I think it's still really, really, really early days with that side of things. But, you know, when I'm working with people like that I'm getting them to eat more vegetables and that's one of the first things that I'm doing and the fiber in that may be able to help coprococcus flourish I mean so sometimes it's we don't know enough exactly about everything yet but you get people eating more fruit and vegetables and you get some live food into their diet you know that they haven't had in a long time and and that helps you know improve the composition of the microbiome I have to say, I haven't seen enough people and followed it up and done another stool test to see if the coprococcus is up and running. But often people are feeling a lot better after a few weeks of putting a bit of time and effort into their their diet and eating better. Because quite often when people have been depressed and anxious as well, they haven't been looking after themselves very well. It's really, really difficult to really take care of yourself when you're low. Yeah. What do you think? You talked about this a little bit with the kefir milk. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but what do you think about the introduction of fermented foods and things? That's something that I've experimented with just anecdotally and tried myself, whether it's, you know, fermented dairy products as a way of getting me to be able to handle dairy better, integrating apple cider vinegar. Is that something that I know it's individual for everyone, but perhaps the majority of people might benefit from integrating? I definitely think so. Because if you think about, you know, so many of us, we're on a processed diet in the 21st century, we're eating dead food the whole time. Whereas if you go back to sort of pre-1950s, most people didn't have a fridge and they had loads of fermented food. You know, it's like they'd be pickling and, no, pickling's the wrong word, it'd be fermenting, you know, like, you know, gherkins, you know, put them in a salty kind of solution and then that would ferment or you know sauerkraut which would be you know it's full of vitamin c and it means that people in the winter in eastern europe and germany and all those places by making sauerkraut you would always have you know vitamin c foods you know for your connective tissue so you you know your teeth aren't falling out you know like the sailors you know who got scurvy in the old days because they didn't have vitamin c but it's just really interesting that a lot of those practices that people 
we're doing aren't done so much anymore, you know, and we're having all this dead food, everything's about shelf life and, you know, for, you know, transportation and supermarket benefits. And so we're not getting all this beneficial bacteria. So fermented foods, yes, they're brilliant. In my opinion, they are far superior to any probiotic pill that you can buy out there. So people often will look at a sauerkraut here in the UK and they go, oh, it's really expensive. It's six pounds a bottle, you know, which I have to admit feels like probably a lot of money. I don't know what that is in dollars, maybe $7 or something like that. But then people will go and spend £250 on a three-month course of probiotics. And you can buy so much fermented food for that money. And the wonderful thing about the fermented foods is if you go and buy the probiotics, they might have six strains in it. But if you buy, and again, it comes back to, you need to get back down the farmer's market. You know, it has to be the authentic stuff that's been put in a bottle and slowly fermented, right, for a few weeks. And every time it does, it's going to have a different profile of a bacteria and it might have 30 or 40 and it might have this one on in that batch and that one in that batch and the gut loves variety. So, yeah, I think probiotic pills are the poor relation to fermented food, but it's all about there's a lot of skullduggery going on with the fermented foods because when I'm walking around health food stores and that – I'm there rolling my eyes. It's like, you'll see promotion. Oh, gut healthy, friendly section. And they have bottles of kombucha and they have bottles of, you know, sauerkraut. But they're the, it's the sauerkraut that's in vinegar and it's the dead food. And they managed to get kombucha some brands that don't even live in a fridge. I mean, if the, the authentic ones that have been long fermented and are really alive have to be in a fridge, otherwise the lids are blowing off them because they will continue to, you know, they're so alive. But that's, so so if you just be really careful how you're spending your money with these fermented foods because if they're at ambient temperature, they've probably not got a lot of health benefits in them. Yeah, so crazy. There's so much to keep in mind as you're shopping because you don't know. know what you're buying unless you do a lot of research on it. Well, at least if you go to a farmer's market, though, you can talk to the people on the stall normally, and they're normally pretty informed about how it's been made or they've been involved in making it. Yeah. What transformations have you seen with your clients? Is there one that really sticks out to you from working with you and adopting intermittent fasting? Do you know what? Just so many people have benefited in so many ways, you know, not just with weight loss, but just thinking there was one lady who, you know, she used to be every evening sitting there with the gin and gin and tonic and eating whatever late at night. And we kind of got her having her nice, like really nice, bigger breakfast. And she was retired, actually. So she could cook at home in the midday and having the very light, you know, supper earlier on. And she came off, um, she was on all sorts of meds for her arthritis and stuff like that. It's like, it really helped her. I had a terrible skin condition. She's had it for 10 years. She's been around every dermatologist. And with her about three months, it was a viral herpes infection on the face and did clear up. And that's with one of those things where you can actually take a photo. You can show. But of course, with that person was originally eating 15 times a day, little and often, you know, the, and that was the first thing I said when I saw the food diary is, oh, do you know that you're eating, I don't know, hourly? <laughs> <laughs> We've got around three meals a day. 
So that was a massive change in what she'd been doing before. But we did lots of other things as well, like, you know, putting more fruit and vegetables in and the live foods. And it's often lots of little things add up to big things. I wonder, how does alcohol fit or does it not fit at all into any of this? If someone is wanting to be on intermittent fasting, wanting to focus on their gut health, but still wants to have the occasional drink, or maybe, you know, most nights a week, people are having a glass of wine. Are, how does that fit? And are there certain types of alcohol that are better than others? Okay. So if you do this eating in a 10 hour window thing, and I've had a huge number of clients say this to me, they say, you know, the amazing thing is it's automatically cut down my drinking. <laughs> you know, they, they were, they, you know, it was like the lady with the gin and tonic. It's like, oh, I'm not drinking all that gin and tonic anymore. <laughs> or maybe she might have it at the weekend, yeah. sort of like Sunday lunch, aperitif or something. Do you mm. see what I mean? But that ha- it broke this habit where it was not, you know, sometimes a lot of the time people do things out of habit. It's boredom. You know, there's loads yeah. and loads of reasons that you sit there going, oh, especially in mm. lockdown. It's like, you know, oh, oh yeah. God, what can I do to make my life more exciting, you know? Um, <laughs> But anyway, lots and lots of people have just, and some of the people on my retreats as well, that's been a big thing with them. It's like, oh my God, I'm drinking so much less now I'm doing this, you know? So it's in a way, mm-hmm. as I say, it comes back to that thing where it's not massive restriction. It's just a change of lifestyle. It's like, if you really like having a bottle of wine, you know, maybe you have it with Sunday lunch and you know what I mean? You make more of a ceremony out of it. Yeah. But people are automatically drinking less mm-hmm. and... They tell me that they feel much better for that. Also, people's sleep quite often improves mm-hmm. when they're drinking late at night. Automatically, because you know, alcohol might help you get to sleep, but you don't have such deep sleep. So the quality of sleep improves. But yeah, and what's better alcohol? If you come back to the whole microbiome thing, yeah, red wine's got polyphenols in it that can, you know, the deep dark colours that can feed the good bacteria in the gut. Yes. But there really is kind of point where how much is it before the alcohol is going to have a detrimental effect? Yeah, and there are so many people that I work with. For instance, if you've got leaky guts, then alcohol can be very harsh and inflammatory and irritate the gut lining. So again, it all comes back to individuals. You know, if I've been working with somebody who's got acid reflux, it really helps not drinking. It does. Yeah, yeah. But it just depends what your goals are, really. But some people, yeah, they can what's the best alcohol? You just have to find what's the best one for you, I think. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) To kind of, you know, I do find it interesting because actually I would say the biggest thing that I hear from people when I first start working with them is they say, I'd be a millionaire if I'd been given a pound for every time someone says this. Do you know what? I eat a really healthy diet and I don't understand why I've got all these issues. And I do, I see all the food diaries and People, there's great work going on, but quite often people are, they're drinking a lot, a real lot, you know, but it's almost become normalized. Yeah. It's the elephant in the room. Yeah. Yeah. It's like (laughs) that big thing. that I I don't tell people what to do. They do a coaching approach where, you know, often in the first consultation, I'm trying never to take things away from people on that first meeting. It's like, how to get somebody completely demotivated? No, I sort of so 
first consultation, I'm always like trying to put in something good or mm-hmm. you know, rearrange the timings might be with some people the first place to start. And again, then they come back going, oh, I haven't been drinking so much. You know, it just happens yeah. by itself. Yeah. Yeah, I love that approach. And that's what I, when I went to a nutritionist a few years ago, that's what the method that she used on me is just, just add more vegetables into your diet or just add more. And that made me feel so much more empowered and at ease. And then I was being healthier naturally, but if she would have said restrict and don't have this and don't have that, I, it wouldn't have worked on me. So, and I think a lot of people, I'm sure. We want to be mindful of time. So there's one question that we ask all of our guests. The podcast is called This Life Explains It All. So our last question is, what life experience has been your greatest teacher? I originally, I've always, always loved traveling. And my original degree was in Spanish and Portuguese. And I spent a year in South America and I traveled all around. And even now, there's nothing, and you know, I've got a Chinese sister-in-law who comes from West China and you know we've been over and my family stayed with you know my her and my brother and all her family and got into eating Western Chinese food very spicy it's Sichuan it's like and and yeah she took us around to her friend who's a chef's house and this to me is where I just get so excited about food mm-hmm. I think it's the greatest pleasure in life yeah amazing yeah yeah, I love traveling. <laughs> yeah, and I always like meeting people from different places in the world and different nationalities and different cultures. And I think you learn so much. And I think as well, coming back to nutrition, I just find it absolutely fascinating time and time again where you'll be, you know, like you meant, one of you mentioned earlier on about the Italian thing, like you have an espresso, you have the big meal at lunchtime, you have the little little meal in the evening. It's like, I find that so often you go around the world and people are automatically doing all these things that yeah. are good for mm-hmm. us. The body's quite good at doing that, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, <laughs> it yeah. is. Oh, I'm with you. It's so interesting to learn about the way other cultures handle food and and just all of these special rituals and customs. And I think reminds us that there's so there's such a big world out there, bigger than you know, bigger mm-hmm. than us. So thank you for sharing that. So if someone wants to find out more about you and your work, work with you, find your book. Where's the best place for them to go? Where can they find that? Okay, so. By the way, my book comes out next week. I have a free copy here. So this, if you go online, 10-hour diet, um, it's on all the main channels here in the UK. Mm -hmm. I think, I know that it's being translated into Swedish, Finnish and Chinese for the Taiwanese so far. Hopefully it will go to more countries as well. So at the moment, it's the UK websites Mm -hmm. where you'll find this. Amazing. My website, inethide.com two N's and two T's in that. That's my website. So because it's COVID at the moment, it's quiet on my website. The book is the main thing. I'm still doing one-on-one work with people, but it's online at the moment. So my retreats and my in-person workshops are not there at the moment. But if you just want to find out more about what I'm doing, ginnethyde.com, I've got a newsletter list when I will launch, and I probably will launch some group online activities as well, sort of working up for that. But I'd also try and keep people in, you know, send out useful information. And, you know, if there's any things that I'm doing, let them know about it. So that's the best place. And I'm on Instagram, Jeanette Hyde, with two N's and two T's. And I try and put stuff that's useful on there. So I'm, I, I don't bombard it. I try and just do it when I'm feeling very enthusiastic. <laughs> 
Amazing. Well, thank you. We will link all of that in the show notes so anyone listening can easily find all of that. Jeanette, thank you so much for being here. This was such a great conversation. Thank you, Jeanette. Thank you. Loved this conversation with Jeanette. Cannot wait to get the book. Yeah, it was so good. I love how the approach is so simple. It really breaks it down very easily for me. So I'm very excited to get the book and try it for myself. Well, if you're new here, welcome. Catch us every Wednesday with a new episode. If you're enjoying the episodes, please leave us a review or share it with a friend. Until then, I'm Stefania Romeo. And I'm Catherine Griffiths. We'll catch you next week. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review or share it with a friend and hit subscribe so you never miss a show.